Faith is having complete assurance that what you see with your eyes is not all that there is, right? It's having this, this, this complete assurance that God can literally do anything, that there is nothing that's beyond his reach. There's nothing he can't do. I mean, the God who literally spoke with his mouth and, and, and this world was created, he can speak to any situation in your life and in mine. If he can raise a dead army of dry bones, he can bring back to life anything in your life that is dead, anything that is broken, anything that is in decay, anything that's not working right. Man, God, he's the God of the comma, right? I mean, anybody else, anybody else who came upon that valley would have just assumed very quickly uh, that the story is over for all of these people there, right? Anybody else. And God teaches a very important lesson to his prophet that even when it looks over, and we, even when it looks impossible, and even when it looks like there is no way, he gets the last word, he gets the final say. We are in uh, week two of a teaching series, God of the Comma. Uh, really excited about that today. What we've been doing is just looking at some amazing stories in the Bible where God stepped in and he completely changed the outcome. Looking at some stories where God stepped in and he replaced a period with a comma. Really looking at this idea, right, that had God not stepped into that story, it would have ended much differently. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the blind man would have stayed blind. Like the crippled person would have stayed crippled. The sick person would have stayed sick. The dead man would have stayed dead, right? In each of these examples I gave you, have you all know that they all had moments where it seemed like the story was finished. They all had moments where it seemed like, you know, the final period had been placed at the end of the final sentence to the story, you know? And I think we've all had times like this in our lives. Times where we were certain it was over. Times where we messed up. Times where we got hurt or we got sick or we got some bad news, we got some devastating news. I think we've all had times like this. And, uh, and I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you brought, you know, kind of with you today. I don't know what your journey has necessarily been like in recent weeks. Uh, but I can tell you that there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of people in here that I, that I know, that I've, I've met with, that I've spoken to, that I know their story, uh, who all understand, if you're taking notes, that when God shows up, everything changes. And like there's a bunch of people in here who know that. I mean, y'all are grateful to know that when God shows up, everything changes. I, I think that the entirety of human history speaks to this truth that every time there was no way, God made a way. I mean, I, this is the idea behind the gospel, right? That mankind was in a pretty bad place because of sin where there was no hope, right? And there was a future only filled with death. And then what happened? God stepped into the story of humanity and he changed everything. Like he shifted the outcome. He changed it forever. And so this series is really built on this idea that God loves to replace periods with commas. God loves to replace periods with commas. It's really built on this idea that this is who he is, right? He loves to step into the stories of people's lives and change outcomes. He loves to step in and offer an alternative ending to the story. He loves to replace periods with commas. Isn't that good news? Now, how many of y'all know that when it comes to the English language, punctuation is a pretty important thing? It's a pretty important thing, right? Like we learn at a young age that the presence or the absence of correct punctuation uh, can completely change the meaning of a sentence. Am I right? Let me just give you a few examples, right, for, just, just so we can, uh, can kind of get caught up to speed here. Let me just show this first one for you. 
Uh, it says, the first line says, let's eat grandma, right? Y'all heard, you've all seen this one, right? Uh, how many of y'all would say, like, I'd rather not. I'd rather not eat grandma anytime soon. And then uh, you can see the importance of a comma, right? Uh, the second line, let's eat grandma, right? That's, how many of y'all know that's a far better way uh, to write that sentence? Let me give you another example. First line says, I find inspiration in cooking my family and my dog. <laughs> Listen to me, if anybody uh, around you has inspiration in doing something like that, you got to be very concerned, you know? Second line, how many know adding those couple commas makes a really big difference? I find inspiration in cooking my family and my dog. Much better, much better, right? Third example, third and final example. Uh, first line says, a woman without her man is nothing, uh, right? I can, I can almost hear the groans starting, right, in the room. You add some punctuation in and the line changes completely. It says, a woman, colon, without her, man is nothing. How many of y'all like that one better, right? Can I just get some, yeah, some female support in the room? A woman without her, man is nothing. Wouldn't you agree with me that commas matter? Wouldn't you agree with me that commas are pretty important, that they can completely change the meaning of what is being communicated, right? So, so a comma is often used to really, to really separate thoughts and ideas and phrases within, within like a sentence structure. Uh, oftentimes, the part of the sentence that comes before the comma can even stand alone on its own. Oftentimes, that part of the sentence that comes first before the comma is, is even a complete sentence. And so the comma is used when there's still something left to be said. The comma is used to really complete a thought. And, uh, and so... Uh, we're talking in this series about the God of the comma, and I want to help you really like, know what I mean. And so I want you to look at this thought with me if you're taking notes. Uh, so within a sentence, a comma communicates that there is something else to be said. In life, a comma communicates hope. That's the, that's, that's the, 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 like kind of the, the distinguish, disque, distinguishing uh, factor like I want you to understand in this series like like we know commas we know their importance we know what they do but in a sentence they communicate that there's something else to be said but the way we're talking about here as the god of the comma in life a comma communicates hope it means that the story's not over it means that it's not finished it means that there's still something else to be said how many all know that life is full of some abrupt and disorienting moments like the the period end of story kind of moments the the kind of moments where hope is very difficult to find. You know, the, the relationship's over, period, end of story. Or you're going through like some sort of financial crisis and it's period, end of story. Or you have a health issue, you're diagnosed with cancer, whatever it is, and it just feels like a period, end of story kind of moment. Or you lose your job, you're unemployed, and it's like period, end of story. You can't have kids the list goes on, bad news, period, end of story. Have you ever noticed how much more difficult faith is in difficult times? Have you ever noticed that? How much more difficult it is to live by faith and to develop faith, to live by, you know, by the, the, the conviction of faith when life is hard? Have you ever noticed how much more difficult it is? Something I learned about faith a long time ago and, and really continue to learn uh, in my own journey is this, is this idea that um, if, if you only have faith when life is good, you don't have faith. If you only have faith when life is good, you don't have faith because, you know, we are meant as followers of Jesus to be people who persevere in faith. 
Meaning that like when life doesn't look good, when life doesn't go our way, when there are challenges in front of us, when in the natural we don't see a whole lot of hope, we persevere in faith believing that there's something better. Believing that in Jesus there's like a better way, there's a better future. And, uh, and so if, if, if I only have faith when life is good, I don't really have faith. I, I want to help you understand um, what I'm talking about here. I, I want to give you like a definition of faith that I, that I came up with and I've, I've used for many years now. And, and, and I, want, I want to just kind of use this idea in terms of defining faith. And so if you're taking notes, look at this uh, thought with me. Faith uh, is the complete assurance that what you see with your eyes is not all that there is. That's faith. The complete assurance that what you see with your eyes is not all that there is. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, very, very, very famous scripture that gives definition to faith. It says this, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. <laughs> okay, That's what faith is. Faith is having this certainty in what we do not see. It's this idea that like, like you know, we have belief. We have this, this, this like conviction. We have this, this faith that has been, been built up inside of us, and it's not contingent on what we can see. In many ways, it's been built up based on what we can't see. So we have this hope for sure. We're sure of what we hope for, and we're certain of what we don't see. Five verses later, Hebrews eleven six, the author of Hebrews says this. It says, and then without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is a pretty important scripture right here. That like, you can't please God without faith. Faith is required when it comes to like pleasing the Lord. It, 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 it sits at like the, the core uh, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and he just tells us here that like, like the reason why is because you actually have to believe that God exists. Right? You can't see him. Like we, 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 don't, we don't see God. But we have this great belief that he exists. That's faith. Being certain of what we cannot see. So faith is the complete assurance that what we see with our eyes is not all that there is. So let me just, let me just give you this, this thought. Faith, what, I, what I've learned is like faith will always struggle to grow and in an environment where we become convinced that what we do see with our eyes is all that there is. Like faith will always struggle to grow in that environment. And so the faith that pleases God that we read about in the Bible, like biblical faith, like real faith, faith is choosing to see what God sees, right? Faith is committing myself to, to seeing what God sees, to investigating the situation to determine what does God see. And here's what happens. When, when you and I, when we begin to see what God sees, we'll start to see all kinds of possibilities for where God can show up and he can replace a period with a comma. When you start to be able to see what God sees, you'll see possibilities around you for times like that to happen. You'll, you'll, you'll just, man, you'll start to get pretty excited about it. When you see those possibilities, like instead of just seeing them, you'll start to hunger for those things to happen. And not just in your life, but in the lives of people around you. When, when you and I, like, we, we train ourselves, we, we commit ourselves to seeing like God sees, to looking at things in the natural and understanding like there's more to be said on the matter, we will start to hunger to see God show up in people's lives and replace those periods with commas. That's, that's what happens. I, I love what, what Bill Johnson has to say about this. He says that, it's a great quote, he says, it's abnormal for a Christian not to have an appetite for the impossible. 
He says, it has been written into our spiritual DNA to hunger for the impossibilities around us to bow at the name of Jesus. Like, I love, I love that thought. Like, that's so good. Like, this is, this is like part of what it means to like follow the God of the common. This is what it means to like follow Jesus, like the God who actually spoke the world into existence and sustains it by his powerful word. Like, this is like what it means that like we, we, don't, just, we don't just serve a God of, of 2,000 years ago or a God who, who kind of once did some great things. Like, there is something hardwired into the DNA of the Christian to hunger to see God still move in our day to see him still step into people's lives and change outcomes. And I believe that it is of, of great importance to God to see our faith rise to a level where we begin to expect impossible things. I think that it is of great importance to God that our faith rises to a level where we begin to expect periods to be replaced with commas. And so, and so I, I, don't, I mean, what happens then if you become a person like this you start to see the way God sees. You know what happens is you start to actually inject hope into hopeless situations. I, I, I've, I've been with families in waiting rooms at hospitals, and I, and, I, and I step into the room, and I see a bunch of hopelessness. And you know, what, you know what's going on? God is, like, brings me into that moment to help inject some hope. Because I, I, I'm, I'm walking in there saying, okay, God, like, I know what everybody else sees. What do you see? What are you seeing? What do you want to do? And when you and I, we start to be people who really, who really uh, care to see what God sees, like, like, we will care less about what we see in the natural, and we'll be able to step into people's lives, and we'll offer hope. You can step into the lives of your children. You can step into the lives of your family. Like, right there in your living room, you can pull the family together and say, hey, we got some bad news, but we're going to trust God. We're going to see what he sees, and you start to inject hope into your family. You can, you can step into a complete stranger's life, and you can say, you know, that you meet randomly, and, and you can inject hope because you are someone who is walking in such a way that you care to see what God sees. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's how it works. We become carriers of this hope and we inject it into the lives of people uh, because this is, how, this is how we live. I want to show you um, a couple examples in the Old Testament today uh, where we see God show up and replace a period with a comma. And I'm going to give you one really quickly, a really famous story in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 37. And this is where we see the prophet Ezekiel uh, talk to us about uh, a pretty abnormal encounter that he has with God. He talks about this encounter where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and essentially like, like takes him into this open vision where he brings him into this valley, into the middle of this valley that is full of uh, dead men's bones. It's full of like dry bones from an army that had been slaughtered like many years prior. Right? There's, there's, there's no flesh left on these bones. I know I'm getting a little graphic, but there's no flesh left. There's nothing like that. It's all dried up. The bones are dry in this valley. And Ezekiel explains this encounter, and he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now, what I want us to see in this story here is what God is really doing, what he's really asking Ezekiel. God is essentially asking Ezekiel if what he sees with his eyes is all that there is. He's saying, can these bones live? 
So he brings them out into this valley. I mean, it's, if you can just try to imagine or, or you know, paint the picture in your mind, I mean, it's, 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 it's a vast army that has died, that is, that is in this valley, bones. And he brings them out into the middle of it, and he says, hey, son of man, can these bones live? He's saying, so what you see with your eyes right now, is that all that there is here in this valley? Now, this is a tough question from God to Ezekiel, right? It's a tough, 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 tough question. Because the story looks pretty finished. Uh, I mean, like, not only has, is the story finished, but it's been finished for many years. I don't know that there could be a more definitive ending to a story than this. Like, like they're all dead. They're all dead. There's no life anywhere. There's no signs of life. But what I love about this encounter between God and Ezekiel is God seems very curious to learn if Ezekiel has the kind of faith to believe that there's more going on here than what he sees with his eyes. God seems very curious to learn that. And so Ezekiel's just honest with God. And he says, he says this, he says, you alone know. <laughs> right? So he looks at like the impossible, impossible situation. Like, like, imagine this. He's like, I don't, I mean, can, can these bones live? And, he, and he, he resolves himself to say, you alone know, God. You know if they can. And so on that day, in the Valley of Dry Bones, you know what happens? God shows up, and everything changes. Everything changes. God shows up, and he replaces a period with a comma. Let me show you how the story ends in uh, Ezekiel 37, 4 uh, through 10. It says, uh, Ezekiel says, Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. <laughs> right? I mean, in case you just didn't know by then, then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay? Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone i looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to it this is what the sovereign lord says come from the four winds o breath and breathe into these slain that they may live so i prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. What? You know? I mean, the Bible is awesome. It is just awesome. This is, this is an incredible story, right? Listen to me. Faith is having complete assurance that what you see with your eyes is not all that there is. Right? It's having this, this, this complete assurance that God can literally do anything. That there is nothing that's beyond his reach. There's nothing he can't do. I mean, the God who literally spoke with his mouth and, and, and this world was created, he can speak to any situation in your life and in mine. If he can raise a dead army of dry bones, he can bring back to life anything in your life that is dead. Anything that is broken. Anything that is in decay. Anything that's not working right. I, lo I, lo I love what, what, what uh, uh, the words here. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. Man, God, he's the God of the comma, right? I mean, anybody else, anybody else who came upon that valley would have just assumed very quickly uh, that the story is over for all of these people there, right? Anybody else. And God teaches a very important lesson to his prophet that even when it looks over, and we, even when it looks impossible, and even when it looks like there is no way, he gets the last word. He gets the final say. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to catch this thought with me. Faith is almost always the mechanism God uses to get me from where I am to where he wants me to be. Almost always this is the mechanism he uses. You want to know why? Because, because we are taught in the scriptures, right, to, to live by faith and not by what? Not by sight. Now, for most of us, if we're just honest, and that includes myself, we are much more prone to living by sight and not by faith. We're much more prone to do that. And so it's, it's, sometimes it's very difficult for us to even, to even like, understand the God of the comma or, or, or to even begin to see like he sees because, because instead we're so trained to seeing like we see. But faith, this is this thing, like, like this complete assurance of what we can't see. Faith is almost always the mechanism God uses to get us from where we are to where he wants us to be. He uses this time and time and time again uh, all throughout Scripture and all throughout really human history where, where he begins to move upon somebody uh, and, and, and compel them to go in a different direction with their life. But he, he kind of veils kind of the, 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 the ending. Like he, he doesn't give the whole story. He gives them just a piece. And he says, hey, I want to take you somewhere. I, I, I want to do something in your life, but I'm just going to give you a little glimpse. I'm just going to give you a little piece. Now, for all of us in here who are complete control freaks, living by faith in this way is very difficult. And I mean that in the best way, if you are one, right? Like, I, I'm not trying to, like, be, be rude to you, because there's a lot of us in here, like, we like to be in control. We like to have our hands on the steering wheel. We like to manhandle the plans of God as best as we can. We'd like to hear from the Lord and then, and then just let him know, hey, we're happy to figure this out ourselves. And so, and so God uses faith, like he uses this tool in our life to move us from where, he, where we are to where he wants us to be. And, and, and he does this even when it doesn't make sense. Oftentimes when it does not make any sense. What I have found is that oftentimes the things that God calls us to um, that seem pointless uh, are oftentimes the things that unlock the promise and the purpose. I don't know if you've ever, ever been in a season where you felt like, like, like you just couldn't understand what God was doing in your life. You, you ever had a time like that? Like, like you, you, maybe you felt distant or you felt like God was far or, or you, know, you really need breakthrough in a certain area. You're contending in prayer, asking God to step in as the God of the comma and change outcomes. And, and yet you just feel like, like, like your prayers aren't making a difference and like you're kind of in a season that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, a season filled with lots of confusion. And so what, what I believe is that uh, oftentimes God calls us to these times that seem pointless or seem to be confusing and they are the things that unlock the purpose in our life. And that what seemed meaningless, we look back and it actually meant everything. Or what seemed pointless, uh, we look back and it had an unbelievable point to it. Like it actually mattered. And so I would say this to you, that at times God will call you to a season of doing something that seems to have no connection to what you need. 
But as you look back, you notice that that was when God was replacing a period with a comma. Like, that's often how God works. That's often how God works. Like, like, like you know, if you think about how God charts, like, like the map or, the, or the, the coordinates of your life, like, he's not looking for the quickest route from A to B. You, you, ever, you ever found that to be true? Like, that's not what he even does. That's not what he does in the Old Testament. Like, he sends them in a circle for 40 years, like, more than once, you know? Like, like God's not looking for the quickest path to get you from point A to point B. He's looking to take you on a journey of forming you into the man or the woman of God that he wants you to be, and he'll do it by any means necessary. And so oftentimes, he takes us into a place, into a season of doing things that seem like they have no connection to what we need and what we're praying for, what we're asking God to do. And when you begin to kind of get beyond that season and you look back on it, what you understand is that it was in that time, it was in that time of forming uh, in, in, in a really difficult season when God began to replace that period with a comma in my life. I want to give you a, a story today. I want to share with you a story in uh, the book of 2 Kings. And uh, if, if, you've, if you've ever spent time reading through the Old Testament, there, there's a lot of it that can be uh, confusing. There's a lot of it that you, if you just read through it like in a Bible reading plan, uh, you know, sometimes it's, 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 it, there's a lot missed because you're just going, like, I don't know, I'll just take it, you know. You, you read these weird names and you're not sure what to make of that. And, you know, there's a lot of background and context that can be difficult to understand. But in this specific story in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, we're going to get to know three kings. Uh, who came together for a specific reason. And uh, two of these kings are kings of the divided kingdom of Israel. Uh, you would uh, understand Israel probably uh, to be a united kingdom under King Saul and under King David and even under David's son Solomon. But uh, when Solomon's son Rehoboam became king, uh, he, he uh, decided... Uh, to not listen to the wise men in his life who told him that he should lift the tax on the people, and he decided he was going to show his, his might, and he made this comment that his, 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 uh, his small finger is, uh, is, is thicker than his father's waist, and that he was, gonna, he was going to uh, e e uh, levy even harsher restrictions and taxes on the people, and so ten tribes to the north, they seceded from the kingdom. And so the kingdom of Israel breaks into two kingdoms. There's Two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, they create the kingdom of Judah. And to the north, we get the kingdom of Israel. I want to give you just a quick video to help paint a little bit more of the background here uh, from the Bible Project. So watch this quick video, and uh, I'll come back and share the story. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. 
Did they worship the God of Israel alone or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book. And that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. Okay, so a little bit of backdrop, right? That's what's going on here uh, in the background of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, right? They were a united kingdom at one point, and then under Rehoboam, uh, that's where things go sideways. And uh, ten, 10 tribes secede to the north, uh, they... Uh, appoint uh, a king by the name of Jeroboam, uh, and there's actually a, a prophecy about him from a prophet, uh, 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 starts with an A, a hijab, I think, and he, uh, uh, he prophesies that this is, this is going to happen, and so uh, you think that maybe, maybe this is like the plan and the will of God, and that Jeroboam's going to kind of take the ten, and they're going to follow God, because there's a lot of problems with, uh, you know, David's family line, and Solomon's son, and uh, and yet that's not what happens. Like Jeroboam steps in and does all kinds of evil. And what you saw in the video, there was 20 kings of the northern kingdom. None of them were good. All of them were bad. None of them were godly. They all set up worship to like false gods. There was two pagan uh, uh, or cultic sites uh, uh, for, for uh, doing sacrifices. One was in Bethel and one was up in Dan. I've actually visited uh, the, the, the cultic site up in Dan in the northern part of, uh, of Israel. Like it still stands today, this, this, uh, that you read about here in, in 1 Kings, this place where, uh, where, where Jeroboam decided to set up like a, this, this altar uh, to all these other gods. His idea was that if, if the people in the northern kingdom traveled to Jerusalem to do these sacrifices, to, uh, you know, every year that they would, they would uh, turn against him and their loyalty would go back to Rehoboam 
And uh, so he put these false, uh, you know, cultic sites up for them to do, uh, to do these practices. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty wild what's, what's gone on. No good kings. And then in the south, we find that they're pretty bad, uh, but there's eight who actually decide uh, during their reign to follow God. And so there's some good in the southern uh, kingdom. And so Second uh, Kings chapter 3, uh, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, uh, Joram, son of Ahab. Okay, we learned about Ahab just a second ago. Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, he became king of Israel in Samaria. Uh, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So Samaria uh, ended up becoming the capital of the northern kingdom, okay? Um, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. How would you like that to be, like, like on your tombstone? Like, he was pretty bad, but he wasn't as bad as his parents. Like, like, who, like, like is that a compliment? It's not, because his parents were, like, the worst, uh, you know, his dad was pretty bad. His mom was like the, maybe the worst woman ever in, in like human history, like pretty bad, pretty bad lady. Like don't ever name your daughter Jezebel, right? That's just not a good, not a good thing. It says he got rid of the sacred uh, stone of, of, of Baal uh, that his father had made. Uh, verse three, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam's son of uh, Nebat, which he had caused uh, Israel to commit. He did he did not turn away from them. Now, Misha, king of Moab, Moab raised sheep, and he had, a, uh, had to supply the king of Israel with 100,000 lambs and with the wool of, a, of, of 100,000 uh, rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. So Joram comes from a family uh, that was far beyond dysfunctional. We've kind of already, already uh, made that clear. And his father is one of the worst, most evil kings. His mom's pretty bad, uh, pretty bad. Uh, and Ahab, his father, had set up a deal with the king of Moab that basically um, they would have to, to pay this very large taxation uh, to Israel, to the king of Israel. And it was supplying uh, all of these, these lambs and rams. And so when Ahab dies, the, the king of Moab decides maybe this is an opportunity to kind of get out of this deal. And, uh, and so uh, King Joram from Israel decides, like, this isn't, this isn't what he wants. And so in verse 6, it says, So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to, Jeho to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, okay, the southern kingdom. So Jehoshaphat is, is the king of the south, the, the kingdom of Judah. He's actually like a godly king. He's one of the eight that serves God. And, uh, you know, his father had warred against the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat, during his, his uh, time and his reign as king, he'd actually uh, been able to make peace with them. And so uh, King uh, Joram from the north, he sends a message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you. Uh, he replied, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no water for themselves or for the animals with them. Let me just show you this, this map real quick. Um, so you can kind of frame it in your mind. So uh, at one point, everything that's in orange and green was like the United Kingdom of, of Israel, right? 
And so now you see like green is north and orange is south. And you see down here is Edom. This is the route they want to go through. And uh, they're trying to attack from the south, Moab. So Edom going down through this way is going through uh, the desert. They're going to go through the desert. So in verse uh, 9, uh, it says, The king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no water for themselves or for the animals with them. So these are two rival kingdoms, Israel and Judah, north versus south. Jehoshaphat, like I already mentioned, was one of the godly kings we read about in the southern kingdom. And, uh, and he has created peace, a time of peace with the northern kingdom. Um, and even though these, these two uh, kingdoms, the north and the south, they've been divided for a while uh, through a civil war, they're now willing to come together to kind of fight this common enemy. And, uh, and so verse 10 says this. Um, it says, what, exclaimed the king of Israel? All right, so they are at a place where there's no more water. Uh, they have gone through this route. Of, uh, of the desert, it's all dry, like they, they, they've, you know, they, they, they've sought justice, and now they're in the middle of a desert, everybody's about to die, and he's just, he can't, remember, this is like not a godly king, the king of Israel, so he's just like, what is going on here? He says, uh, what exclaimed the, uh, the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Okay. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of uh, Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and the king of Edom, they went down to him. Okay, so you have the northern kingdom and the uh, king and the southern king. Like northern king, not, not a good guy, like, like not godly in any way. The three of them go to inquire of the man of God, the prophet of God, Elisha, who in that video we see had had, had I mean, like 14 power feats, you know, pretty amazing things. Uh, he had walked with God and done unbelievable things. And so what we know in the story up, up until this point is that there is no water. They've come all of this way. Uh, they're going to die in the middle of the desert and that the story appears to be completely over. And they're not sure that there's really any hope. And they go to inquire of the prophet of God. Um, and this is what happens in verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? <laughs> okay? So he's, 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 a, he's like a wicked man. He steps into the presence of the prophet of God and, and Elisha just looks at him and says, like, what do we have in common? What do, we, what, do we, what do we have to do with each other? Why are you here? He says, go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, right? Ahab and Jezebel. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over uh, to Moab. So now he's blaming God for this, okay? So not only does he not serve God, like he's now blaming the God of Israel for why they're in this predicament. Like, like he's basically putting on Elisha saying, you're, you're, the, you're the spokesperson for God and this is God's fault, so that's why we're here. We're, I'm not leaving. In verse 14, Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, right, the godly king, I would not look at, I would not look at you or even notice you. It's bad, it's a bad deal. He says, but now bring me a harpist. 
And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. I think that's a really interesting thought, and I think that's, that's really an interesting verse to kind of look into when it comes to, like, the role that, that like, music can have in, in kind of ushering us into the presence of God. It seems to be something that Elisha needs right here. He needs a harpist. Uh, and when the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. <laughs> now, here's what I would have been asking, okay? If I was in this room, if I, like if I was just kind of in the background, you know, and, and I'm, like, I'm kind of like, you know, a servant or something of these kings, and I'm just sort of like, I get to come into the room. Um, like, I, I'm thinking, like, how exactly does digging a ditch help this situation? Like, don't you understand that we need water? Like, don't you know that, like, like that's what we came here for? And so maybe it would have made sense if Elisha had told him to go dig a well, uh, but to dig a ditch? So here's what they get from Elisha. They get a comma, right? They get a comma. So Elisha doesn't tell them no, like, and he doesn't tell them that, uh, that they're all going to die in the desert. He tells them, this is what the Lord says, go dig ditches. So basically he tells them, here's, here's, I'm, I'm going to give you like a, a little longer lease on life. Like the story's not over right now. There's more to still be said. He says, I want you to go out from here and I want you to dig some ditches. Okay, so this is not the comma that they had in mind. Like this isn't the comma that they wanted. They had something else in mind. Like they got, catch this, they got the comma. It just didn't look like what they wanted it to look like. If you're taking notes this morning, oftentimes God will ask you to do some things that do not seem to make sense in the natural. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? There are times where it is especially difficult to see God at work. I mean, nothing about digging a ditch seemed like a natural method that would provide them with water. It just did not make a whole lot of sense. And how many of y'all know that sometimes God will ask you to do something that doesn't make sense? Sometimes God will send you into a season where he just asks you to just stay right there and just dig a ditch. <laughs> dig a ditch, and it seems pointless. And I want to just tell you a couple things just in response to this story. Like, if you're living by sight this morning and not by faith, you will run the risk of negotiating away your destiny because you will think that you have to understand the plan of God in order to obey the plan of God. Most of us, most of us run into this issue all the time. I can imagine all the questions that would have come into my mind as, as the prophet told me to go back and dig some ditches. Most of us would do that, and most of us would question why, you know, what, what, how does this connect to what we really need? What's the point? Most of us live this way. Where, where we struggle to be able to, to, uh, to obey God unless we can understand God. We live this way a lot of times when it comes to faith that we have to understand the plan of God to obey the plan of God, and God just wants you to trust him. God wants you and I to be people who live by faith, who take him for his, or at his word and do what he says. God will always ask you to do things that you would never think to do on your own that seems far from the choice that you would make for yourself, and this is why you have to choose to live by faith. Got to choose to live by faith. He may ask you to dig a ditch and it doesn't make sense. He may ask you to forgive someone that you wouldn't normally forgive. You ever been in that situation? He may ask you to give money that you wouldn't normally give. He may ask you to talk to somebody that you wouldn't normally talk to. And he may ask you to travel a path uh, that you and your family would not normally choose to travel. 
He oftentimes brings us to things that don't make a lot of sense. But when we get the chance to look back on it, as we get further down the road, we understand that it was in that moment, it was in that place of obedience and that place of faith that God was actually replacing the period with the comma. And here's how the story goes. In verse 17, it says, for this is what the Lord says. This is Elisha speaking. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. In verse 20, it says, The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. The land was filled with water. If you're taking notes, did you notice that uh, the comma didn't come until the next morning? Did you notice that here in the story? The comma didn't come until the next morning. I read these scriptures, and I, and I begin to wonder, like, how many hours must have passed with nothing happening? Like, how, how long does it take to dig, like, this many ditches in, like, this big of a valley? How long does that take? If it, if it requires, like, an ar- like, multiple armies to do this, Like, how long does it take, and how many hours must have passed with nothing happening? How many of you have had a moment in your life where what you see in front of you doesn't seem to be changing at all? Anybody? Like, you're praying, you're contending, you're asking God. How many have had times like this in your life where you're just, you're trying to be obedient, but nothing seems to be changing? Like, I'll just be honest with you about, like, how I'm wired, okay? I try to be a man of faith, (laughs) Um, but if you want me to dig a ditch, I need to see something while I'm digging, you know? Like, I, like that's just, I, I, right? I need to see something. Like, I need to see, at least see some wet dirt. Like, I need to see some progress. I, I need to see that it's working. I need to see some hope, right? Like, like, maybe you can relate, like, but to just keep on going and digging and digging and digging with no signs of anything changing, that's pretty wild, and it didn't come until the next morning. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this with me. Hope isn't found in a change in your circumstances. Hope is found in Jesus. Circumstances hadn't changed. They got the comma. The circumstances hadn't changed. Hope isn't found in just, you know, being able to walk out of here because you got, you got prayer and, and, and you know, you, you, got, you got, you know, your circumstance changed. You got your miracle. Like, like life, like hope isn't found in that. Hope is found in Jesus. It's found in him alone. Like, like my circumstances can stay the same and I can be filled with hope because of him. Um. How many of y'all know that oftentimes when God asks you to dig a ditch, nothing will seem to be changing and nothing will seem to be improving? You know what I mean? Like, like when you're raising your kids and nothing seems to be changing and you're contending and you're asking God to do something different, like nothing seems to be shifting. When you're praying for a breakthrough, when you're believing for a healing, when you're hanging on for a miracle, how many of y'all know that like, there are times where God just tells you to go and just, just do something that seems pointless, like, like continue to just, to just be uh, obedient right where you are, and it doesn't seem like anything's shifting or anything's changing. It doesn't seem like there's any wet dirt. And he wants to know if you'll continue to dig even when it looks like nothing's changing. The question is this, if you're 
taking notes this morning, is when you pray and nothing seems to be changing, will you still dig a ditch? When you pray and nothing seems to be changing, will you still dig a ditch? This is why God tells us to live by faith and not by sight. Because what you see with your eyes is not all that there is, everybody. It's not. You're going to have to dig a ditch at times in your life and believe that it's working even when it doesn't seem like it is. They had to dig first before the water could come. Like the, they got the comma, they got the promise that the water would come, but they had to go dig first. Like they had to do some things that would test their faith. They had to do some things to test whether or not, like, like are you going to keep shoveling? Are you going to keep digging? Like, the longer you go, are you going to keep doing it? And it required this obedience. Like, here, here's the, the awesome part of the story and the thing that brings me a lot of conviction. You know, if Israel and Judah, these two kingdoms, uh, these two armies, if they had failed to dig the ditches, God's blessing would have passed them by. God's blessing would have came, but it would have passed them by because they would have had nothing to contain the blessing that he was pouring out into their life. And for some of us, the Lord may have us in a season of just doing some stuff that doesn't seem to make that big of a difference, a season of digging ditches, a season of preparing ourselves to receive the water. The water would have never arrived. Like it would have, they would have never had what they needed had they not first dug some ditches. And God, what I have found is that he often moves us to do things that may or, not, may, or may not make sense for the moment that we are in, but they are things that will prepare us for what we will do in the future. I have had so many times in my life where like the season didn't make sense. Times where I've, I've, I've struggled to trust God, struggled to believe that he, he kind of had me on the right path, struggled to believe that he knew what he was doing even. And, and there have been so many times in my life I can point back to and go, it was in that moment, it was in that season, it was in that time. That was when God was shifting things and I didn't realize it. That's when God was changing my future and putting me on a different path and I didn't understand what he was actually doing in that moment. There are so many times that I can look back on my life and I can see the hand of God replacing the period with a comma, but I had no idea that it was actually happening at that time. Every ounce of your destiny is tied to your level of obedience. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. Obedience oftentimes unlocks the comma in our life. Their obedience to dig a ditch, it's what activated the comma that God had for them in this story. He could have simply given them water. How I many you know God was able to just give them water miraculously like that? He could have easily done it. He could have easily provided what they needed, but he wanted to see their faith before he released the water. He wanted to know if they were people who believed that what they saw with their eyes was all that there was. Or if they could be people to continue to, to believe in faith and persevere in obedience even when they saw nothing changing around them. Would you stand with me this morning? Faith is a tough thing. Faith doesn't always make sense. Would you bow your heads with me? As I, would just want to, I just want to pray to close our time out today. And if you're here today and, and you would just be honest with me, you say, Pastor Jordan, like, 
Like I'm someone right now who is living far more by sight than I am by faith, and I want to I want to change that. I want to start to see what God sees. I want to start to see the possibilities around me for the periods to be replaced with commas. I want to see that in my life. And uh, you need your faith to shift. You need your faith to grow. You need to start seeing the way God sees. Could I just see your hand in here today? That's you. Every head, I mean, heads bowed. This is, let this be a moment between you and the Lord. You need to see something change. You need to see something shift. You need to start seeing the way that God sees If you're in a season right now where you feel like God has just brought you into a time of obedience and you're struggling with being obedient, you're struggling with uh, kind of remaining faithful while you're waiting to see God step in, and you just need to kind of be uh, uh, sort of revived in your faith, you need your faith to come back alive, you need to see like the strength come back to your spirit man to continue to be faithful and to continue to be obedient in this season. Can I just see you today, if that's you, just struggling, just like staying steadfast? struggling, continuing to walk in obedience to the Lord when you don't see him moving. Father, I pray over every person in this room under the sound of my voice, every person who would say, man, that faith is hard, that faith is, 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 is a struggle. Every one of us who would say that like, man, we're just at a season or a place where we've been walking and living life far more by sight than by faith, and we need you to change some things radically in our life. We want to be people who commit to seeing the way you see. God, I pray you'd start to open up the eyes of, uh, of those of us in this room right now, oh God. Those of us who tend to see in the natural far more often, I pray you'd give us spiritual eyes to start to see the possibilities of what the God of the universe could do when he steps into people's lives and people's situations and starts to, starts to replace the periods with the commas. I pray faith would increase and rise in this place. People who would be willing to contend for breakthrough and transformation and miracle after miracle after miracle because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they serve the God of the comma, the God who gets the last word, the God who speaks to the impossible and things happen and things shift and things change. And so increase the faith in this place today, oh God. Change, change us from inside out, oh God. And Lord, I just speak to those of us in this room. I speak to those of us, God, who are struggling to just remain faithful and struggling to continue to, to walk by faith and to stay obedient in the, in the mundane, in the meaningless, in the pointless seasons of our life where we can't fully connect what you're doing with what we need. And I pray, oh God, there would just be a, a, a radical rise in this room of just obedience to you, obedience to you, faithfulness and steadiness, choosing to believe that you're as good as you say you are, that you're as big as you say you are, a complete surrendering of our life, a removal of our hands from the steering wheel, this removal of, of like needing to control the outcome. I pray faith would rise and obedience would increase. And God, you would continue through the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, to transform us, and to make us into the men and women that you want us to be. So come and do what you wanna do in us today, oh God. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen.